Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 14 today. A couple quick announcements. I know we're not doing announcements, but a couple we have. Uh, just a reminder, youth group today from 1 to 3 here at the church, and then next Saturday, men's breakfast, 7.30 to 9.30 out in the gym. Uh, I, it, we weren't planning on it, but we're contemplating it might be the last one. We were going to do one in May too, but I know things get very busy on Saturdays. End of May, people are trying to get things done. Plus, is that Memorial? Yeah, we can't, yeah we, that's probably the last one. So, Maybe. As of right now, it is. <laughs> Let's just pray. We'll, we'll, we'll jump in the Word. Lord, we're, we're thankful for your Word, Lord. It's an anchor. It's a searchlight for our heart, an anchor for our life, God. It uh, holds us in the storm. It's, uh, it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Lord. It gives us direction when things are dark and confusing, uh, and we need it, Lord. We know you, it also says in Hebrews that it's, it's quick and powerful. It's alive. It, you send it out, and, and it performs the work you've desired it to do, Lord. Uh, Hebrews says it divides, it cuts, it separates soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Uh, and, and we need that surgery, God, every time we get in it, Lord, it's unlike any other book, Lord, because this one's alive, and uh, we're thankful to be able to get in it, Lord, and, and have you speak to us, Lord. That's our desire this morning, Jesus, in your name, amen. Uh, Paul says this in Romans, you can stay in, in Samuel, but Paul says this in Romans uh, chapter 15, verse 4, he says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. We have the word of God, and Paul here, writing to the Romans, is talking about the Old Testament. He says, we have the Bible. We have the Old Testament so we can learn. And, and as we're traveling through Samuel, we're learning the right things to do and the wrong things to do so we can avoid them. And, and, and it, it's nice to, to make all the right choices and to do all the right things and make all the right decisions, uh, but it's also uh, very possible and probable that we're going to make some bad decisions and bad choices. And we see that in the life uh, of Saul here. But he's just like us. He's human. And we're going to see at the end of chapter 14 uh, that the writer Samuel here, at, at least this portion, brings that into light for us. We see a lot of things in, in Saul's life, mistakes he's made, and, and the mistakes he's made, and the price that he's paid for it. But we also see the human side, the reality that, man, that could be us. That we can put ourselves in his shoes. So uh, 1 Samuel 14, a little recap from, from a couple weeks ago, because... Uh, we had Easter, and we were away on missions last week. Uh, chapter 13, we, if you remember, Jonathan attacks a garrison of Philistines in Geba. And Geba is right in the center of Israel. It's in the heart of Israel, right in Jerusalem. And, Saul, and, and uh, Jonathan is not happy. Did I say Saul? I meant Jonathan attacked that garrison. It was Jonathan. And he sees that the enemy has infiltrated. He's on their turf, right in the heart of Israel, and he's not happy. 
and he, and he makes an attack against them and gets them on their heels. It, it rouses the enemy. They're, they're unhappy, but Jonathan doesn't tolerate it. He's, he wants to take back ground in their land, ground that God gave them, promised ground, a land flowing with milk and honey that the enemy has come in and taken over. And so he attacks them. And unfortunately, you know, it exposes Saul. This attack exposes some areas in Saul's life that are a problem, that we're going to see are a problem. And God doesn't expose our flaws to condemn us and to nail us and to expose them everywhere. He does that. He allows that so he can restore, so he can heal, so he can help. If you remember the woman caught in adultery, and they're trying to trap Jesus, and they bring this woman who's caught in the very act of adultery, and they bring her to Jesus in whatever condition that was. They don't bring the man. It's a trap. They're expecting Jesus because the law says that person needs to be stoned. It's death. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus begins to write on the ground, and one by one, everyone goes away. And Jesus says, hey, where's your condemn? Who are the people here that were condemning you? And she, and she says, they're not here, and there's none, my Lord. He says, and I'm not condemning you. That exposure wasn't so he could stone her. It happened so he could forgive her. But he didn't say, don't, don't worry, I don't care about it. He says, listen, go and sin no more. Don't do this anymore. Don't stay on this road. And sometimes that's what happens. Saul's exposure, God knew Saul's pattern, what his flaws were, what his chinks are in his armor. And, and the devil knows yours. God knows yours, but so does the devil. And he wants to exploit them. God wants to heal them. God wants to step in and help you and help me because he knows what those flaws are. And so as we continue in chapter 13, Saul makes a terrible mistake. He's supposed to wait there in Gilgal for seven days for Samuel to come. Samuel's going to say, hey, listen, when you don't know what to do, just wait for me. Seven days. Meet me in Gilgal. And he goes to Gilgal, and he waits six days and 23 hours or whatever it is. And he's like, I got I to gotta sacrifice. I'm losing people. People are leaving. They're, they're, they're bailing on me. I'm losing my soldiers. Bring a sacrifice. And as soon as he does it, Samuel shows up on the scene. What, Saul, what are you doing? You know that's not for you to do. That's for the, you were supposed to wait for me. And you might think, ah, that's splitting hairs. You know, what, what's the big deal? You know, he, don't, can't you see he was nervous? He's worried. He's, this is the circumstances of his life. He just reacted. He's a king. He wasn't supposed to do that. He wasn't supposed to. He's not a priest. And he wasn't supposed to do that. And, and there it is. And Samuel asks him a question, much the way God asks many of us questions. Matt asked Adam and Eve, where are you in the garden? Like God doesn't know where Adam and Eve are. No, knew right where they were. He's asking a question so they can think about it and answer. And Samuel's like, what are you doing, Saul? What have you done? And, and he has two choices. He can either say, I'm a doofus. 
I shouldn't have done that. That was so dumb. That was, I'm sorry. I think that the rest of this book, the rest of his life would have looked much different. But he says, you know what? I didn't ask for this. <laughs> he says, where were you? The people were leaving. He has all these excuses why he did it instead of saying, I did the wrong thing. Instead of owning sin. And that's what we have to do. God's asking you, you know, why are you doing that? What are you doing? Why are you acting that way? And we have a couple choices. We can downplay it, excuse it. What's our answer? His was wrong. You know, David, this doesn't seem that big of a deal compared to what happens with David, which, which we're going to, you know, we probably won't go there uh, to 2 Samuel. But 2 Samuel, as David becomes king, what's he do? He has uh, an illicit affair with a married woman, gets her pregnant, realizes it, tries to cover it up, kills her husband, looks like a hero uh, by taking, uh, taking her in into his harem, basically, and, and, and Nathan has to come to him. And he you know, paints this picture uh, of a man with a sheep and a man with a ton of sheep. And the man with a ton of sheep goes to this guy with one and he grabs his sheep for a guest and he kills it. And David is furious. He's like, this guy has so many sheep and he goes to this guy who has one and kills it? That's nuts. This guy should die. Well, that wasn't in God's law for him to die. It was to restore fourfold or sevenfold. And Nathan says, David, you're the man. That's exactly what you did. You took this woman, killed her husband, covered it up. She's pregnant. You did that. Look at all God gave you. Look at where you... And David goes on to say, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, and God has put away your sin. Stark contrast between what David does and what Saul does. Saul is like, no, this, I had to do that. Don't you understand I'm under severe pressure? And David's like, you're right. I can't get away from it. I sinned. I made a mistake. So as we move into chapter 14, Jonathan is taking back ground, right? You, you know, the inroad for your life and my life, you know, the ground of your heart, the ground of your mind, it, it, it's often, uh, you know, maybe you're messing around on, online. Maybe you're watching inappropriate things. Maybe you're doing inappropriate things. The, the, the roads to the center of the city, to Jerusalem, are paved with unforgiveness, bitterness, sins of the heart that make a road for the devil to come in there and expose and exploit you. Things that you know need to happen. We can excuse them and say, oh man, don't you know what they did to me? I can never forgive them. I can't apologize. Me apologize? They should be apologizing to me. Right? And we can make excuses and those become inroads for the devil to get in there and exploit your weakness and the chink in your armor. And then you start to do, the fruit of that becomes other things you do in your life. Your spare time. 
what's in your fridge, and all, you know, all those things that be, can become sin. The inroads are bitterness, pride, unforgiveness. We have to be very careful because at the end of the day, we're going to see at the end of this book, Saul dies in battle, fighting the Philistines, him and his whole family. It affects everyone. You never sin to yourself, and it's never small. The Bible says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's a picture of sin, leaven. It's a little bit of yeast that you put in bread that, you know, uh, if you used to make, we used to make, uh, I can't even remember what it's called, but everyone used to pass this little baggie around and want a little piece of it, and they put it in their bread, and it would blow up and, you know, whatever. It's just a picture of yeast. You put it in the bread, and it blows up, and then it, you know, makes this nice bread or whatever. But it's also a picture of sin when you let a little bit just, ah, that, I'm justified in that. It's okay. I can hold on to that. Then poof, it blows up. And it's exploited and it affects everyone. And for Saul, he dies on the battlefield fighting these Amalekites and, 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 and Philistines. He didn't have to. He's given every opportunity to turn, to turn, to turn. And so chapter 14 starts out like this. They're surrounded at the end of 13. There's three different garrisons of Philistines kind of beginning to surround them. And it says in verse 1, Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us, take, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. So it's just Jonathan and his armor bearer. Is there a little ting in this thing? Sounds a little funny. Um, he says, hey, let's go over. And Saul was sitting on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, and the people who were with him were about 600 men. So there's a stark contrast that, that, that uh, I believe probably Samuel's writing right, uh, penning right now for us, and it's, and it's Jonathan who's like, Let's go to battle. Let's go to war. We got, I'm not going to tolerate this in our land. And then you've got Saul, who's the king, who was appointed to this business. The reason he became king was to defend the people. And he's sitting under a pomegranate tree, probably picking out pomegranate seeds out of his teeth, kicking back. And Jonathan's like, hey, no one else is going. We're going to go. Let's go. What do you think? And, and, and it, what's being drawn is a contrast between uh, this man and his father, right? Proverbs 17 says, uh, the son's children are the glory of their father. It means, number one, they're proud of their dad. Number two, it means they often reflect their dad. And you can see that in your kids. Those of you who have kids, people have told you, oh, they act just like you or they, they, they look just like you. And I'm sure that was a lot in Jonathan. Probably talked a lot like his dad, maybe looked a lot like his dad. Probably people commented all the time, man, Jonathan, what a handsome man, Saul. You're so, you know, remember Saul's handsome, big, rugged, uh, tall. Man, your son looks just like you. Oh, thanks. But the reality is he's nothing like him. 
Saul's under the pomegranate tree and Jonathan wants to go to war. He's not going to tolerate this. He's not going to stand for it. Be careful what we tolerate. He's, you know, Jonathan could have lived a cushy life. He had it. He was the prince. He was next in line. He could have said, ah, well, I'm not, dad's not in battle. I don't have to go to battle. Let's sit back. Let's send someone else into battle. He's like, no, I'm going into battle. He realizes something that we're, we're not living for this world. This isn't the kingdom that we're living for. He, he's not living for a cushy life. That's what, that's what Moses, the, you know, Hebrews 11 talks about Moses. You know, it says he, rather, he would rather suffer the affliction with the children of Israel than enjoy the, the pleasures of this world of sin for a season. He's like, it's not worth it. Moses is like, it's not worth it. Maybe Jonathan even thought of that. Like Moses, look what, who Moses, Moses was next in command. He was the next guy on the list. But look at what he chose to do. He chose to deliver God's people rather than to sit back in the palace and pretend like nothing's happening. Well, I think that's our life. Are we sitting back thinking, you know, what's the next thing I want to buy? What's my little kingdom look like? Can I afford this payment? You know, we brought the kids to Mexico last week, probably 16 or 17 students, uh, and, and you, you pull in, if you've been to Mexico or any third world country, we, we pulled into Tijuana, and it, it is like, it's like night and day difference, the contrast. It's like, whoa, people live in that place? People... People, tons of people living on the streets in shopping carts, and it was just night and day difference. And, and we drove down to uh, San Vicente uh, to this lady's home, and all these students that are from America, after some of them, it wasn't even a day. They're like, I love this. I want, can, can we live here? How do we do this? Can this? Like, I don't want to go back home. We spent the last day in San Diego, in a, you know, going to not a plush hotel, whatever. It was, you know, a regular hotel that had an outdoor swimming pool. We wanted to give the kids a place to swim the last day. We went there, and on our way there, the kids were like, I'd rather spend our last day in Mexico. Some of the kids, uh, Jude and, and, and Joe... Gambino, those kids were sleeping on the concrete floor. I mean, they didn't, even, they didn't even get a mattress, the poor kids. They're like, we love this. This is amazing, right? That's because we're not meant for this world. But in America, we're conditioned to think we have to live for the next thing, the next stuff, rather than serving other people, loving other people. We're not, Jesus said, if you want to find your life, lose it. But if you want to keep your life, kingdom, you're going to lose it. It's, it's because we're not made for this world. We're not meant for this world. And Jonathan acknowledges that, sees that, and he's in stark contrast from his dad who's just drifting. His dad just dri He's under the pomegranate tree, like probably thinking, what do we do next? Well, hand me another pomegranate, right? <laughs> I've got to think about this for a minute. He doesn't pray until halfway through this chapter. And when he does pray, God doesn't answer him. God doesn't even answer him. 
He's just sitting there drifting. And we can drift, become neutral, and drift through this world. Drift on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, all the, and your life is just drifting, floating, wherever, it, wherever the internet takes you, Netflix or whatever, and, and, and just consumes your mind. And then you wake up the next day, trudge through work, and then just drift, drift, drift all night, drift all. And that's what Saul was doing. He's just drifting in his life, wherever the, wherever the next thing took him. But it's not Jonathan. He had purpose. He had direction. He's going into war. He's going into battle. It says, verse 3, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people didn't know Jonathan was gone. People didn't know. You know, verse 1 says he didn't tell his dad. He just went off into battle. He just headed off into battle. And, and there's usually two types of people in this world. Because you remember in the last chapter, chapter 13, Jonathan just went after a garrison of Philistines. And when Saul figured it out and understood, it says Saul blew the trumpet. And it says that everyone knew that Saul made war. Well, it wasn't Saul. It was Jonathan. And there's a couple types of people in this world. Somebody that, that for, for, to, for you to serve, for me to serve, somebody has to blow the trumpet and acknowledge your service and acknowledge what you're doing and, and, and you want credit for it, or I want credit for it. And then there's other people like Jonathan, they don't want anyone to know. Didn't tell his dad, didn't tell anyone. He's like, dude, let's go. Let's just go. Let's go into battle. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 for a second, we know this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 says, Take heed, watch out, that you do not your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. He says, Therefore, verse 2, when you do a charitable deed, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's, that's how tight-lipped you should be about it. That your charitable deeds may be in secret, and the Father who sees in secret will himself reward thee openly. Turn to Matthew 25 with me for just a minute. should be serving. We should be serving. We should be engaging. Should be purpose. Matthew 25 verse 30, 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and with the, all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another 
as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set his sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, blessed, blessed, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundations of the world. And then he'll say, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer, say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did, you, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. When your eyes are open to people's needs for you to serve them. That's the direction of your life. That's the direction of my life. God, how can I serve you? By tithing? How about seeing the need in someone's life? How about visiting somebody? How about a meal? Tithing's fine. But how are we serving the Lord? What are we doing? Are we looking at people's needs and what the, what's going on in their lives? Are we sensitive to other people? He's visiting people in prison. You know what? Those are guilty people. Most of them. Oh, they're guilty. They need Jesus Christ, right? So do you. The reason why probably a lot of us aren't there is because we never got caught. We're guilty. People are guilty. And then he will also say to those on his left hand, depart, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And they will answer him saying, when did that happen, Lord? And he will say, as surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And they will go away into everlasting punishment. It's the natural thing for a believer to have compassion. That's what Jesus had is compassion. It's your pain in his heart. And he sees a person and says, how can I help? What can I do? How can I, can I give you something? Can I spend time with you? What can I do for you? That's, that's what Jesus is telling us. To serve. And that's Jonathan just says, you know what? These guys are in our territory. People, the nation is oppressed. They're robbing them. A harvest would come and the Philistines would say, all right, half is mine. No, you can't do it. All right, three quarters is mine. They were robbing them. And Jonathan's like, that can't happen anymore. That's not going to happen. So turn back to Samuel with me. Verse 4 says, between, Jonathan had gone, between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other. And the name of the one was Boses, and the name of the other was Sina. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Interesting, Sean gave me a, a, a little... Uh, Oh, a little news clip of, of a story that happened in World War I. 
it was uh, when Britain, they were attacking the Turks, and they met there in Israel. Uh, and, and they literally, the British bought Bibles and examined them to check out the land, to see what, the, the, uh, you know, what it looked like. And, and all of a sudden, one of the commanders read this verse and said, this is where, where we are. It's exactly where we are. And the Turks are right on the other side and camped where the Philistines were. And he started this battle and they, they you know, wrought this great victory because this guy read his Bible and said, I can believe it. I'm going to do it. This is amazing, right? I think that's the way it is with every battle. You know, these things were written. That's why I read uh, Romans 15. They're written for our learning. We're not to be just hearers of the word from Sunday to Sunday or even your own devotions or Bible studies. They're not just for our hearing, but they're for our doing, James says. Because the Bible says that knowing the Bible, there's a, there's a deception in just knowing the Bible and not doing it. Because sometimes we think just because we know it, we're doing it. Oh, I know that scripture. I know that verse. I know where that is. I know it. Well, are you doing it? Oh, yeah, of course I am. I know it. Well, it doesn't mean you're doing it. He says to be, not be hearers of the word, but doers of it. That's what we need to do. That's why we're learning the Bible and, 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 and even the Old Testament. So verse 6 says, And Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, that it may be that the Lord will work for us. Nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Right? He's saying it's not the size of our army, it's the size of our God. It's not the size of our army that's going to win this battle. It's always the size of our God. That's why God, when he chose Gideon, this mighty man of valor, he's like, no, I'm the least. What are you talking about? I can't do this. No, man, you're going in. And he, he doesn't trust the Lord. He's putting these fleeces out. Then, then he's got 30,000 men or 32,000 men, and God reduces his army to 300 people to fight the Midianites. And, and, and the point he's proving to Gideon, it's, it's not by might or power. It's by my spirit. I have to do this. I'm in this battle. I'm working. We can rest in our own strength, our own ability day to day to walk through life, and we're, we're, we're going to be very limited because we can be very weak. Or we can walk through letting God hold our hand because he's very strong, and he can get us through trials, battles, difficulties. And the whole idea is, Gideon, I want to tell you something. I want to show you something. I want to teach people something, that you can trust me in this battle. And that's what Jonathan maybe even was thinking that. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Man, God's done it both ways. Let's just go and see what happens. And I love his armor bearer. We need armor bearers. You know, it, God sent, or Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. It says his armor bearer said to him, do all that's in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. Amazing. That's, you know, he's like, let's do it. Hey, fine. I like that. That's a great plan, right? That might be your spouse, might be your armor bearer. Somebody in your life just encouraging you. Yeah, you feel like you want to witness? You want to make, you know, let's do something for the neighbors at Christmas. Let's like, like give them cookies and witness to them. Let's do, you know, whatever it is. That's small, but 
What are these battles we're in? What's going on? How are you going to make ground in your heart, in your neighborhood, with your family, your friends, people that are perishing and going to hell? Yeah, that's great. Let's go. That's why God sends them two by two. It's encouraging. Yeah, I have this idea, but is that true? I, I think, turn, with, turn to me with, to Esther chapter 4 for one second. You guys know where I'm going with this, probably. Esther chapter 4. They may have thought back to this story. They may have thought, you know, as, as Mordecai, Mordecai and Esther are, have this major battle going on, uh, Haman is trying to destroy the children of Israel. He, he's like makes this decree, he's fooling uh, the king, and it's not looking good for the children of Israel, but God appoints this young woman to be a princess and puts, him, puts her in this camp. And it says in verse 13, Mordecai told them to answer Esther. He says, hey, go tell her this. Do you not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more than all the other Jews? For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And she says, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do it. It might, might be the wrong thing. It might be, I don't know, but I'm gonna just going to do it. Let's go. And that's what Jonathan is saying in his army. Let's go. Maybe we'll die, I don't know, but let's go. Let's see if the Lord's working. Maybe this is God's plan. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all Esther commanded, and they just worked together. Her uncle Mordecai and Esther, they're like, yeah, let's try it. What do we got to lose? Let's go to battle. Let's take God at his word and do what he says. So it says this. In verse 8, and Jonathan said, very well, let us go over and cross to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go to, the, go to them. But if they say, to the, say, to, say thus, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hands, and this will be a sign to us. You know, it's not exactly like Gideon. You know what, you know what Jonathan's doing? Jonathan's like, I don't trust myself sometimes. Let's see if this is God. Let's throw a fleece out there. Maybe I'm a, this is a cockamamie idea. I don't know. Let's try it and see what happens. But this is how we'll know. If they say, stay there, we're coming down to you, we'll, we'll know, all right, listen, better not do it. But if they say, come to us, we'll know, let's charge into battle. Doesn't make a lot of sense to expose yourself, does it? Like, all right, let's show ourselves to them. 
two guys. And this, the Bible says in chapter 13 that they were more than the sand. The Philistines were more than the sands of the sea. Like, as far as you could see, it was this encampment. And they're like, let's do it. And this piece of ground, if God wants to give us this battle, he can do it. So he says, all right, let's try this. And here's our signal. So both of them, it says, uh, or verse 11 says, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines says, look at how they mock. Look at the Hebrews coming out of the holes where they have hidden. And that's the, you know, the, the devil, it, the Bible says, is a, our adversary, and he's a roaring lion. He wants to make you and I afraid to step out in faith. So immediately, what, you know, they show themselves, and they're like, look at these guys coming out of the holes and the rocks and the den. These, who do they think they are? And sometimes that frightens you guys. You guys go to witness to someone on, on the job, and the devil's like, you're, you can't witness. You don't know what to say. And you're like, you're right, I don't. Darn, darn it. I better, I better turn around. I better crawl back into my hole, right? Because the devil's there lying to you. But they don't take it that way. Verse 12 says, And the men of the garrison called Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come on up to us. We will show you something. And Jonathan, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Right? There's our sign. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And he came after them. And his armor bearer killed them. So, and that's like sin in our life, man. You got to kill it. You have to kill it, right? Jonathan gives him a slash. The guy goes down, but he's kind of, and, and sometimes we can look at things in our life and we're like, all right, you need a little help. Let's baby that. Let's, let's nurse that back to health. And so it wasn't that bad, right? The armor bearer is like, no, dude, this has got to end right now. That's sin. And we're going to see that that affects uh, Saul in the next chapter as he ha- he's called to kill the Amalekites and he lets some live. And you know who'll ki- who kills Saul at the end of his life? An Amalekite comes back and slays him. And that's a picture of sin in our life. The Lord's like, you need to deal with that or it's gonna deal with you. And you're like, no, that's just, you know, Saul's gonna say, it's the king. We kept the best things for ourselves. Some of the sheep, some of the God's like, no, I said kill every one of them. And Saul's like, man, just, and the, but the people persuaded me, he'll say. And it's just the king. Well, at the end of Saul's life, he's there on the battlefield. And who kills him? An Amalekite. These things we let live and we think, it's all right. It's not going to hurt me. It's not going to hurt my family. And Jonathan dies in battle. Saul dies in battle. It's a sad life he chooses in disobedience and rebellion. And, and verse 13, and Jonathan climbed on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and, and they fell before Jonathan, and he came after them, and his armor bearer killed him. It, it, it's also a picture of work. God has called us men. That's hard work. You ever crawl on your hands and knees? I used to do flooring. I did it all the time, and now sometimes I get on my hands and knees to try to help somebody. I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I do this? My knees are killing me. Try to kick carpet in. I'm like, oh shakes my spine, right? And these guys are crawling on their hands and knees to head into this battle that's intense warfare. 
And God uses effort and energy, and he rewards it. He's called us to do that. Not just There's a time to sit back and pray, but there's a time to engage in the battle. Right? Jonathan's engaging. We're going to see Saul disengaging. Saul's like he's not in tune with the Lord. And then it says, the first slaughter with Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half an acre of land. And then there was a trembling in the camp. So God steps in and in the field and among all the people and the garrison and the raiders also trembled and the earth quaked so that it was very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and there was a multitude melting away. And they went here and they went there. So Saul's got his spies Tell us what's going on. And, and they see what's going on. And it says, then, then Saul said, so they go and tell Saul. And Saul said to the people, verse 17, who were with them? Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. Saul, do you have time to make a roll call in Israel? Like who's there, who's not, how many people you got? Exactly. Like what are you doing, Saul? There's a major battle going on and you're, you're, you're trying to figure out who did this. Who's going to get the credit for this? It should be me. You know, I was, don't you know I was just busy eating pomegranates a minute ago? And they called the roll, and surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. You remember last time they brought the ark into battle? It got stolen. It was a big problem. And now Saul's doing that again. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, all right, withdraw it, never mind. He's like, he doesn't know what he wants to do. Bring the ark. No, never mind, don't bring the ark. And Saul and all the people who were with, them, with him assembled and they went to the battle and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor and there was a very great confusion. So God is winning this battle. Like they're fighting each other. Moreover, verse 21, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines, listen, this is important, verse 21 and 22, we see two camps of people. The Hebrews which were with the Philistines who went with them into their camp from the surrounding country and they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So there's this camp of Israelites who joined the Philistines who were like, ah, I don't want to be on the losing team. And Israel's losing, so let's join the enemy. Let's join the Philistines. And then there's another camp of people, verse 22. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, they heard the Philistines had fled, and they followed hard after them into battle. So, you know, these people who were frightened and people even who joined the enemy had their faith stirred up by these men. They're like, let's go. And that's what faith does. You might think, it's just me and my wife, or it's just me and this. If you walk in faith, you don't know who's going to start to, to come alongside and get encouraged, who you're going to encourage at work. The different people that are in your life that, that are Christian, but they've walked away. They've stepped back from the Lord. They're afraid. And that's, that's all the people whose their faith gets stirred. And they join the battle, and they head forward. And, and the Lord saved Israel. Listen, this is important. Verse 3, 23. The Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Very clear that the Lord saved Israel. But verse 24 says, And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed a, 
the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. Right? Saul's like, this is my battle. These are my enemies, rather than it being the Lord's and the Lord's victory. And he placed them under a curse, and it, was, it stressed the people. It was confusing. It was his rules and not God's rules. God never said to do that. Now all the people of the land came to the forest, and now all of a sudden, now they're, they're on a forced fast, and now there's honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was honey dripping, and no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath, Saul will kill us. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, and the people with the oath, therefore he stretched out the end of his rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. And then one of the people said, hey, your father said don't do that. He charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed is the man who eats food this day. It says the people were faint, though. And Jonathan said, man, my, my dad is troubling the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found, for now would there have not been such, have there, there would have been such a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. You guys are running at half speed, half energy. You guys needed a little carbo load, and it didn't happen. And that was the wrong thing. My dad, you know, that was a bad decision. And now they, verse 31, they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon, so the people were very faint. And the people rushed to the spoil and now saw man's rules, his legalistic rules, cause these guys to violate God's rules and his law. It says the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. It was against God's law. They were supposed to drain all the blood, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone this day. Like, let's make a place to sacrifice. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people. Say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat. Don't sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So that was right for Saul to do. And every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. And look, this was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And that was actually even a priest's job. But Samuel should have built several altars for Saul. Shouldn't have been the first one. And Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. And the priest said, hey, what, why don't we ask God? Let's draw near to God. And Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? And will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But look at he did not answer him that day. It's frustrating for Saul. Saul's like, what? wait a second, I'm the king. And Saul says, come over here, all of you chiefs of the people, and know and see what the sin was today. So Saul is not owning any sin. He's thinking the problem here is someone else. Not my sin, not my problem. Somebody, I'm not hearing from God. It's these people in my life. 
It's the people in my life. So he, he, he recognized one thing. It was sin, but he's looking at other people, and we can have that tendency, like it's their problem. They did this to me. The reason I act this way is because of them. Verse 39 says, For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son. Very, very strange that he says this. Even if it was my very son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. They like knew it was Jonathan that what he was talking about. Jonathan took some of the honey. And here's another foolish oath. Then he said to all Israel, you be on that side and my son be on, I and my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good in your eyes. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken, right? He has this foolish vow. Even if it was my son, I would kill him. And then he realizes there's two camps, either my son who made this great faithful victory or it's me who's been making these crazy vows, not hearing from God. Who, who is it? He's got a choice to make. It's either me or my son. I like my son, but I like my pomegranates too. Jonathan is taken, and Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of my rod that was in my hand. And then he says this, and look, it's not a question mark. It's an exclamation point. point. He says, so now I must die. You made that vow. Terrible vow. I must die. He doesn't say, should I die, Dad? I mean, is that even right? He says, no, Dad, you made the vow. I should die. You're crazy. This isn't good. And Saul answered and says, all right, God, do so, more so, uh, do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. The guy is beginning to lose his mind. But the people who said, but the people said to Saul, finally, they're, they're like, yeah, do what's good in your eyes. Do whatever you want. Do what's good. In your... Then they're like, wait a second, Saul. The people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? No way. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. The one that separated, they're saying the one who separated from God this day is you, Saul, not Jonathan. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he didn't die. And Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel. And fought against his enemies on every side, against Moab, the people of Ammon, Edom, Zobah, Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. He was power. He began to be powerful. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Right? He's going to be distracted in battle as soon as David shows up on the scene. He's fighting against his enemies and David, God's anointed. And he's ultimately going to die in this battle. And then all of a sudden, the writer of Samuel brings the humanness of Saul into picture. Yeah, he's the king. God's anointed. And then he says, 
all of a sudden gives like a little bit of a genealogy here. The sons of Saul were Jonathan and Jeshua and Melchishua. I'm sure I didn't say that right. And the names of his two daughter, his firstborn was Mirab, and the name of the, the younger was Michal or Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinaham, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now we see Saul's a son. He's a dad. He's a husband. He's an uncle. He's a nephew. He's a guy. He's a man. He's, more the, he's not just a king. He's just a guy, just like we are, people who have the ability to maybe fall, who have a history, a story. It's to cause us to be a little sensitive to not point fingers at Saul and say, hey, you're an idiot. He's just a guy. He's a man. God chose him, loves him, and he's trying to work with this guy. And Saul will not be corrected. He won't change. But he's just a guy, just a man, he's human. We need to be sensitive to that fact, people around us. He's a dad, he's got kids. He's got the same struggles you and I have, raising their kids, right? They're, they, they don't always listen. He's somebody's son. He was raised by somebody. He was dad, who knows? You know, if you've ever been to someone's house, I remember going to a friend's house when I was young, and all of a sudden the dad's yelling at, at, at my friend. I'm like, my gosh, who is this guy, right? You get a little frightened. You don't know how people are being raised or what, what they're saying. I remember going to other friend's house, like they had everything I wanted. Like, wait a second, you've got Pringles? Macaroni and cheese in the box? Cereal anytime you want? Yes, Right? And that's, he, was, that, he was a kid. Saul was just a kid in his life. He had nephews. He was a nephew. Right? Just a guy. People. People in need of help. They need the Lord. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your sensitivity to us, God, to ask us those important questions in our life. Where are we? What are we doing? Why are we acting that way? And, and Saul, over and over again, has had, had so many red flags that he never responded to, Lord. Uh, we know you love him, uh, and, and, and we know you love us. We want to be people that respond to what you're doing. We want to walk our, this life living for another kingdom. You've taught your disciples to play, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we want with our life. If it's not our prayer and our cry, I pray it would be, that we want your will to be done in this world and in this life, God. We love you. Thank you for your word and how it illuminates our path, how it speaks to our heart, Jesus. In your name, amen. We're not meant to live for this kingdom. We got another one that is going to endure. This one, the Bible says, is going to melt with a fervent heat. Uh, it's going to be rolled up like a scroll. Uh, but what we do for the Lord in Christ is what matters. You know, souls are what we're looking to take into heaven with us, not uh, stuff.
right? God wants to use your life. He wants us to walk by faith in this life, Can, having an eternal perspective, right? doesn't mean we can't have our own little, our stuff to enjoy. God, the Bible says he gives us all things freely to enjoy. But our goal in life is people, walking with the Lord and seeing people saved, living for another kingdom and another world that's going to endure. 